0: Welcome to the Learning Scientist podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by the Chartered College of Teaching and listeners like you. To support our work and to gain access to exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Scientists. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Samaraki, a professor at Rhode
1: Island College. And I'm Dr. Althea Need Kaminsky, a professor at St. Bonaventure University.
0: And as we mentioned in our last episode, we just got back from running a bunch of workshops in England, which was super fun and really invigorating. We've been talking about strategies for effective teaching and learning with teachers, and we're just really excited about it.
1: Yeah. And so one of the things that came up in the workshop when we were talking about all the strategies was how to actually do that in the classroom. So we thought we would do an episode with some sort of practical tips on how to do this.
0: Yeah, and so for each of the strategies, we've already recorded an episode where we've talked about the strategy and how it can be utilized in the classroom, gone into a little bit more depth. We've also done a couple of episodes on the strategies for students and a couple episodes on the strategies for parents. So today we're going to start out just giving a very brief reminder about what each of the strategies is, and then we'll talk about some tips. So if you haven't listened to some of the older episodes from earlier when we were doing our show, I recommend going back and listening to those first and then picking up with these. This will provide a little bit of spaced practice too, which is the first strategy that Althea is going to talk about. Right. So
1: spacing is just the simple idea that if you space out your practice, you'll learn more, you'll remember more. Uh, So just repeated exposure, repeated relearning or testing or whatever it is you're doing to space out your practice tends to work much better than if you mass your practice together. Um, So in other words, cramming is not a good idea for long-term memory.
0: Yeah, and interleaving is another strategy that has to do with sort of planning or when you're going over things. But the idea behind interleaving is jumbling up the stuff that you're trying to learn. So if you think about math, Instead of doing a whole bunch of one type of problem until you've mastered it, the idea behind interleaving is mixing up a bunch of different types of problems so that the students are having to switch back and forth. It helps them not only to learn how to solve the different types of problems, but when to implement what solution and this can work for math quite well, but it also can work in other areas where students need to be able to discriminate between different ideas or different concepts.
1: And the third strategy is retrieval practice, or retrieval, and that's just bringing information to mind. Uh, Anytime you have to remember something from scratch, when you have to recall and reconstruct that memory, that's retrieval. It can be in the form of tests and quizzes, but it can also just be in the form of having a conversation, and having to remember a term that you just learned. So it's a really simple but very effective learning strategy.
0: Yeah, and then our fourth strategy is elaboration and specifically elaborative interrogation. The idea behind this strategy is making connections between different ideas and asking questions. So elaborative interrogation is all about asking how and why things work and then having the students try to figure out the answer to those questions. So if you think about trying to ask about maybe the difference between World War I and World War II, the students could ask about how each of them started, why each war occurred, who was on each side, the types of weapons, the type of communication, how they were resolved, all those different types of things, and then look for the answers to those questions.
1: The next strategy is concrete examples. And concrete examples just mean that we learn better when we have concrete examples of things. We learn concrete concepts better than abstract concepts. So uh, a lot of the times when we're learning new material, it can seem very sort of disconnected uh, from real world everyday examples Concrete examples are generally better because they help us sort of picture in our mind what's going on and relate to the material a little bit better. So for example, um, table is something that's very concrete, very, very real. You can point to a table, like dog, cat, those are all very real concrete things. Um, But something like maybe learning is not as concrete. That's a somewhat abstract idea. We might be able to talk about an example of learning, but it's not, right, there's some debate over what is and isn't learning. So that's something that's more abstract. So anytime you can give concrete examples of things, that helps you remember them more.
0: Yeah, and one example of a concrete example might be talking about this concept of classical conditioning, and you can talk about You know, students trying to learn the the unconditioned stimulus, and that's the one that elicits a natural response, sort of like an instinctive response, versus the conditioned stimulus, which involves some sort of training or learning. That's all very abstract, but if you think about um, an abstract, a concrete way of talking about it, you can think about how a lot of times your pets cats, dogs, or other pets will respond to things like the sound of a can opening or the sound of a cabinet opening where they keep their food. And you can link up that concrete example to all of the different aspects to make it less abstract. The final strategy is somewhat related because it's all about trying to make things more concrete, but it is the strategy of dual coding, which is all about combining different formats, specifically visual representations of information and verbal representations of information. So a lot of times we see textbooks has, they tend to have words, verbal descriptions of things. There might be a picture off to the side. That picture doesn't necessarily contribute or help to help the students understand the information. The idea here is trying to produce representations in both formats that the students can really absorb and really sort of Leverage our ability to learn in multi modalities.
1: Yeah, so like Megan mentioned at the top of the episode, we have episodes about each of those strategies uh, a little bit more in depth. So if you wanted to hear some more examples of those or uh, get some examples of how to use those in the classrooms, we strongly recommend that you check out those episodes. But what we wanted to talk about today was some sort of practical tips for combining all of those things and how you might actually implement all of this in the classroom.
0: Yeah, so I think the first thing to really try to think about and and really sort of grasp onto is this idea that all of the strategies work, but they're probably going to work for you in different ways and depending on the context. And you certainly don't have to overhaul all of your teaching and try to do all six of these strategies all the time that's probably going to lead to a lot of chaos and it's going to be very difficult and it might mean that you're not implementing the strategies in a very intentional and
1: strategic way yeah and one of the last things that we want you to do is to feel like this is a checklist and that you aren't a good teacher until you have checked all of the boxes to do all of the things all of the time because that's just not gonna be possible for everything, first of all. Uh, And it's gonna cause you probably a lot more hassle than it's really worth in terms of the effectiveness that you might get out of it. So some of these strategies are gonna work better in other situations, in which case definitely use them. But if it really feels like you're forcing it and it doesn't feel like a natural fit for that material or that class, then don't feel like this is something that you have to do in order to be good at using these strategies. It's also really difficult
0: for someone to kind of sit on the outside and look for these strategies and decide whether or not they're being applied and use a checklist because it depends on the context in which they're being used. And frankly, what you see the students doing doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually engaging in the strategy. So what I mean by that is you can have a group of students in a classroom who are all sitting and writing and drawing and they might be engaging in an activity that's not super helpful. It might not really truly be dual coding or retrieval practice. Another group of students in a classroom can look like they're doing the exact same activity, but if the book is closed and they're drawing a a visual representation of something that they have in their minds, and they're using retrieval practice and dual coding, and they're doing all this stuff, it might look exactly the same. And yet, underlying, one group of students might be using the strategy, the other group of students might not. And so it's a little bit difficult to really tell from the outside, at a surface level, what's being done, because what really matters is that underlying processing.
1: Yeah, and sort of on a similar note, a lot of these strategies work on difficulty, basically. So, the first few times you implement them, students are naturally going to struggle. And the struggle is actually good, right? So, the first few times you use retrieval practice, it may be difficult. Their performance may not look like what you think it should be looking like. So, if an outside observer were to come in and see you on the first day that you're starting to use a strategy, they're gonna see students not doing as well as they think they should be doing, and you might incorrectly assume that this is a bad strategy. On the other hand, some of the things that are not as good for long-term learning uh, look very good initially. So you might have students who are performing at 100%. Um, So space practice is one of the things that we talked about when you space if you mass everything together so that students are having to repeatedly recall something maybe lots of different times in a row of course they're going to get to 100 percent right then and there but then if you ask them a week later to remember the same information it's probably not going to be as good on the other hand if you had space it out in that lesson they won't be doing as well but they would look better a week later Yeah,
0: we see this with interleaving as well. When students block practice, which is doing one type of problem over and over and over again, they tend to get really good at it. They master it. And from the outside, it might look like the students are learning a whole lot, because performance is really high. Whereas when you use interleaving, the students tend to make more mistakes They are, um, I'm thinking of a specific study by Taylor and Rohr, I think 2010, where the students were at about 80% during interleaved learning. They were making errors, but that actually led to better long-term learning than the blocking. So if you were just looking from the outside at student performance in the classroom, you might think... The teacher using blocking has their students doing really well and they're learning more, when in reality, the opposite might be true. So this is all just to say one of the big overarching themes across all of these strategies is that they tend to be very difficult, but that difficulty is really good for the students and good for learning. And what's good in the short term, what feels great immediately, both for the students and for the instructors watching the students try to learn, while that might look great immediately, that's probably not what's going to produce longer-term, more durable, flexible
1: learning. And I think this is another reason why you shouldn't try to implement all of the strategies all at once and do a complete overhaul of your class and your curriculum. because it's going to be difficult the first time around because you won't be able to see the benefits of it immediately. right? You, you'll have to wait until the end of the course or the end of the unit or, or whatever in order to see if that type of uh, interleaving or spacing or retrieval or whatever the strategy was that you implemented, if that really did end up working out in the long term. Um, and it, it might not or there might be reasons why you maybe need to tweak something or go back or you thought it was going to work out one way, and it turned out it didn't. So I, I would be cautious to tell you to to try to do everything all the time, right? Because you kind of have to add a little bit, see if it works, go okay, and then add a little bit more as you go, and as you get a better feel for what's working in your classroom.
0: One other thing, too, that I've really noticed in my, in my teaching, in my classroom uh, at Rhode Island College, is that... When I try to make a ton of changes at once, or even if I'm just teaching something new, it's a little bit more rough than when I've taught it a few times. And, you know, that roughness isn't necessarily bad. It's good to try new things. We've got to get out of our comfort zone and, you know, always try to get better. We're telling the students, right, that they should be doing things that are difficult and being out of their comfort zone. We as teachers should be doing the same. But the students do notice, and I think it kind of it definitely affects the vibe in the classroom when I'm trying something new and things are a little bit rough. And I think if I were trying to change everything all at once, it would probably really change the dynamic in the classroom. It would change the morale of the students and at least with university students where they're adults and they kind of feel like they know what helps them learn and they're they're getting to pick their classes and pick their instructors and all of that they might be less likely to want to stay with me in my class because they feel like it's not going well. They don't have that level of confidence. It's not not smooth, in other words. And so trying to change little bits at a time to get out of our comfort zone a little bit, but not to completely ruin, or at least I shouldn't say ruin, not to completely sort of throw out the window all of those years of expertise that we have is probably a nice happy medium. And then we can change little bits each time we teach it so that we're getting better all the time, but we're not having to sort of just jump right into the deep end without knowing how to swim.
1: Yeah. And and like Megan, I'm sort of constantly updating my classes. So even though I obviously know all these strategies and want to bring these strategies to, to everyone listening, I can't manage to pull them off in my classroom perfectly every semester. So there's certainly no reason for you to feel like you need to do that in order to be like good at this thing. Because it, it, every class is this weird, unique combination of, the material that you're presenting how you're presenting it the makeup of the students in the class right it, all of those factors might affect how well something goes and so just there are sometimes some real world constraints where you can't do spaced practice because you just don't have like the time or the resources and it might be nice but maybe that's a problem you can solve next year.
0: Yeah, so taking things a little bit at a time, biting off a little bit, and trying to make small changes that are going to have big impacts on your teaching is sort of is sort of what we're all about. And staying away from this concept of checklists and having to do all six strategies at least once in a day or whatever the case may be um, is definitely not what we're going
1: for. And that's also why we recommend that you uh, do some further reading, listen to the the other podcast because your ability to implement the small changes is gonna be based on how well you understand the strategies and what's underlying them. Because like Megan said, a lot of things can look very similar on the outside, right? On the surface, students might be doing the same activity. It looks like they're all sitting down and writing, but unless you're able to like mindfully, differentiate between, okay, that writing is actually retrieval practice, that writing is actually them just copying down their notes, which is maybe not as effective, or maybe those students are drawing pictures and not paying attention versus those students are drawing pictures and helping with dual coding, which is actually very, very good, right? So in order for you to understand if the strategies are being used, you really have to have more than just a surface level understanding of the strategies, which is why just having a checklist to say like, oh, well, my students, I'm trying to think of something ridiculous. They drew 10 pictures today. Oh, look, I did dual coding, right? That's not, that's definitely not what we're advocating for.
0: Yeah, and I actually have a little bit of an anecdote uh, along these lines. When I was teaching a first year seminar class, um, uh, one of the fall semesters, so brand, brand new college students in their very first year, My first year seminar was all about effective study strategies, and we went over these six strategies, and we practiced them. We talked about the reasons that they work, all of these things. But a lot of it was really new to the students. They were novices in this area. They weren't experts. And one thing that we know from the cognitive literature is that experts tend to understand the underlying deep structure of something, whereas novices tend to focus a little bit more on the surface details. And so one of the things in trying to sort of gain expertise and understand it is to get beyond those surface details and really get the underlying meaning. So I was teaching my students about retrieval practice, and I was telling them that they could take a sheet of paper, and as they were going through a chunk of their textbook, they, they actually brought in books from other classes that they were um, taking that semester. And as they were going, they could jot down the main ideas on one one side of a sheet of paper, and the basically the main points and then they would close the book and use those clues basically the cues that they had created in terms of picking out the most important topics to then try to practice retrieval and write out what they could remember and those little words that they put on the side would serve as sort of like a a hint to say hey try to remember to write out this part of it, and that would be retrieval practice because they're bringing it all to mind and they're writing it out, closing the book, all of that good stuff, and after a little bit of time, one of the the assignments was for the students to try to combine two of the strategies and to sort of utilize these things in another class again, and a group of the students, I I noticed they were, um, they had taken notes in a different class, and what they were doing was copying their notes from one page to another. And I asked them what they were doing, and they said, well, we're using retrieval practice. And I thought, okay, maybe, I'll, let me see, where are we going with this? And I said, well, can you explain it to me? And they said, well, retrieval practice was the one where we were writing. We had a blank sheet of paper, and and we were, we were looking at our stuff, but then we were writing. And so they thought they were doing retrieval practice because they were writing. And then they told me, as opposed to dual coding, which is where you're drawing. Um, and so There was some confusion and we had to sort of go back and say, well, okay, just because you're writing doesn't mean you're engaging in retrieval practice. Copying your notes is copying. Putting your notes away and trying to reconstruct it, write it out from memory would be retrieval practice. And then reminding them, hey, actually retrieval practice doesn't have to involve writing. What if... Uh, the two of you, one of you looks at the notes and then the other one tries to explain it to the other. So, you know, the student who's not holding the notes is trying to explain it from memory. The student who's holding the notes is checking and sort of prompting the other student. Now we have retrieval practice and writing isn't happening at all. It's about this process, bringing the information to mind. And so this is just an example, a concrete example of how nice. just Very because nice. two students, Just because two students are doing something that looks the same doesn't mean they're engaging in the same process. Similarly, two students can be doing something very different on the surface level, but they're engaging in the same process. And so understanding what the process is and what we're trying to get the students to do and how we're trying to get them engaged to learn really well is important in terms of designing activities that are going to work well in your classroom with the students that you have for this year or this semester or whatever and for the context that you're teaching in. So again, as we said before, all of these strategies are discussed in previous episodes. And so if you want to dig into a specific strategy and how you might utilize that in your classroom, you can go back to those older episodes and start there. We would recommend picking one or two starting there and maybe slowly going back through the episodes and hopefully in the future we can continue to record episodes where we talk about utilizing these strategies uh, in new ways as we continue to talk to teachers thanks for listening thanks bye this podcast is funded by the chartered college of teaching and listeners like you To support our work and to gain access to exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learningscientists.